TED Audio Collective. Okay, well, this is how I normally say my name. Shireen Marisol Miraji. Shireen is half Puerto Rican and half Iranian, but also American. This is how somebody who probably doesn't speak any Spanish and doesn't know any Farsi would say my name. Shireen Marisol Miraji. And Shireen has been using her mixed-up feelings about her mixed ethnicity and identity to drive her professional ambitions for a couple decades now. She's a creator of the NPR podcast Code Switch, which has helped kickstart a new kind of conversation in America about race. And it has helped her grapple with her own issues about trying to find a place where she belongs. And somebody who speaks Farsi might say it like, oh, my gosh. And I feel like all the I'm so nervous all all, all of a sudden because I feel like all the Iranian people are going to judge me. But here we go. Bracing myself for judgment. Shirin Marisol Meroji. This is ZigZag, the podcast about the changing culture of business and work. And we're talking to people who are experimenting with new ways to run their companies, their careers, and their lives. I'm Anoush Zamarodi, and I am half Persian and half Swiss-German, but also a lot of New Jersey. And over the past couple years, it has been fascinating to see how the words inclusion and diversity have become corporate buzzwords. I've been on my own kind of journey to try and understand how the people I work with perceive my identity. I've been also trying to understand how that relates to how I perceive myself. More of that later. Maybe there's been a new kind of conversation about race where you work, too. One big job site recently reported that hiring for diversity and inclusion specialists at U.S. companies grew by 30 percent just last year. But there is a sense in some workplaces that we're all kind of walking on eggshells. Some of us are worried about saying the wrong thing, not being politically correct, or being too PC, not assimilated enough. There are gripes about changes in hiring practices happening too fast or not changing fast enough. That same survey that found DNI specialists, as they're called, were in demand, also found that over 60% of U.S. employees say they've witnessed or experienced discrimination based on age, race, gender, or LGBTQ identity in the workplace. Is that just because we know it when we see it now? How do we deal with this? Well, it can be deeply personal, which is where Shireen and her very special brand of storytelling come in. On this episode, she explains her thoughts on identity politics in the workplace and just how complicated racial identity can be for people who aren't clearly white or black. It just is something that I think I will go to my grave never quite feeling like I fit anywhere. Two half-Persian women break it down after a quick break. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Click. 
Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Canva. We're back. This is Zigzag. I'm Anoush Zamarodi. My name is Shireen Marisol Miraji, and I'm the co-host of NPR's Code Switch podcast. Okay, so Shireen, when you tell people your name, are they like, because this is what I get every time. <laughs> oh, where, what's that name from? Where are you from? Do you get that? I get that all the time. And, it's, and what do you say? It's a complicated answer. I mean, I usually say I'm from Northern California. Okay, so Shireen's first and last names are Persian. Her dad is from Iran. Her middle name comes from her mom, who is from Puerto Rico. But they met while they were both getting degrees at UC Davis in California. So he ended up marrying my mom. They ended up staying and having two Persian Rican kids. <laughs> Persian Rican. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. And we call ourselves sometimes Swersian. Swersian. Um, oh, I love that. So what yeah, is that? Swedish? So Swiss and per- oh, Swiss. Swiss and Persian. Got yeah, it. yeah, yeah. Um, or Puiss doesn't sound quite as no, good. No, no, no. Swersian's um, cool. <laughs> <laughs> Way cooler. So Shireen, yes. we finally met, like, it's nearly a year oh, ago now. And I, I've loved and you for so long. I loved you for so long. <laughs> and, like, I can't tell you what a relief, I mean, not that I doubted it, but what a relief it was to meet you and be like, oh, I know I really love her. Like, not just the person in public, the persona and, and her way of doing journalism and being on air, but, like, your, like, girlfriend loved you. Because you were awesome. And I was like, this is a person I want to spend time with. And, well, A Persian or a person? (laughs) (laughs) Both, dude. Both. (laughs) I've been watching your career, and you have really turned your combo, your triple identity in some ways, into a part of your profession. Yeah. And I wanted to understand, was that a conscious decision or was that something that you just thought about all the time and so it bled into all the work you did? And I ask because it's only in the last couple of years that I've realized how, I guess, assimilated my parents were, that we Hmm. never talked about our identity that way. And it wasn't until I realized, and this is a weird admission, until I realized that I was being counted in the diversity um, (laughs) list at the station where I was working that I was like, oh, they think I'm a person of color. And I had never really thought about it, which sounds so naive, but... I said this to you, and you just started laughing when we first met and nodding. So I want to hear your take. Well, I have always felt different. And I think I knew that I was a person of color from fairly early on. I grew up around my Puerto Rican family who couldn't pronounce my name. (laughs) You know. (laughs) How do they say it? Cheating. My grandma calls me Chiringa. I definitely don't have a name like any of them, like my cousins, Yvette, Lisette. You know, there's a ton of Antonios in my family. (laughs) My brother's Mark Anthony, which is a very Puerto Rican name, and I got Shireen. And so already at a very young age, I was like, "Mm, I'm different. (laughs) I am am Mm. different. And then, you know, growing up, I went to Catholic schools, and a lot of the schools that I went to growing up in California— there were a lot of Mexican and Filipino Catholics and, 
you know, my family was not sure about the religion thing because <laughs> they just didn't know. Like, my mom's Catholic, but they couldn't figure out, oh, should we baptize her? And so I didn't get baptized till I was seven, and that was really awkward. And the Catholic Church is often <laughs> babies, so I'm like a seven-year-old. <laughs> There's a bunch of babies <laughs> getting baptized. I was always kind of, like, off and very <laughs> aware that, all right, I'm not quite fitting in anywhere. And so I think that's something that's always been something I've been trying to figure out, whether it's, oh, how do I fit in? Like, what? how do I diminish? And in a lot of ways, it was diminish my Iranianness because I didn't really know mm-hmm. anything about it anyway. So how do I diminish my Iranianness to be more Latina, you know? So <laughs> in junior high— What does that look like? Yeah, in junior high— People would just pronounce my last name Merahi, and I would be like, yeah, cool, go with that. <laughs> Merahi, sure. And also, I'm Mexican. As far as you are concerned, I'm totally down. Yeah, you want to say I'm Mexican? Super into it. I remember I used to have this, like, free jacket that I got, and it said MWA on the back, and it stood for Modern Woodman of America. <laughs> what? But this is when NWA was really oh, popular. Yeah. Right? NWA, the rap group. But everyone thought in the school, that Catholic school that I went to, which was predominantly Latinx, everyone thought it stood for Mexicans with attitudes. And and it was green. So it totally worked. And so I would be like, yeah, totally. Mexicans with attitudes, super down. This does not actually stand for modern woodmen of America, which I don't even know what that was. But so I loved rocking the jacket. I was like, yes, everybody think of me as a Mexican with an attitude. (laughs) So good. I love that. All of that to say, I've been trying to explore who I am, where I fit in, what's my identity, where do I fit into this complicated racial puzzle of this country. And it's just been something I've been fascinated with. So when I went to college, I studied it. I was like, I want to know about the Latinx diaspora in the United States. I want to know everything about that so that when I say I'm a Latina, I have everything to back that up, even Hmm. though my name is Shireen Miraji. So it almost (laughs) sounds like you were like, God, if only I could shake this Iranian Persian thing and just be totally Latina. For a long time. I still struggle with that. Huh. Can I just ask, where's your Muslimness in all of this? Like, is your father still devout? Not at all. He just kind of wanted to distance himself from his identity mm-hmm. as a, a Persian man, I think. Even though he had, like, the thickest accent. <laughs> his name is Farouk. Oh, it is? Yeah. I mean, he went by Fred my whole life. He did? He went by Fred? Yeah. I remember in seventh grade, the vice principal at my new middle school said, Your name's really hard. Can I just call you Mandy? Oh, no. Yeah. And what did and I was you like, say? I— Got to give my little 12-year-old self some credit. I was like, no. Good job, And then I kept walking to the school bus. I don't know where I got that from, but I was like, Yeah, "Uh ew. It's not even hard, by the way. I know. Thank you for saying that. But also, I, um, I think, have anglicized it because, as you know, when you say things in Iran, yeah, you say there's, like, no syllable. You don't choose a syllable mostly when you say things. that's right. There's no emphasis. There's no emphasis, and that doesn't work elsewhere. So I don't know. I went with Manoush, whereas if you talk to my Persian relatives, Manoush. Yeah, I've definitely anglicized the Shireen part, but not the Marisol part. And that's because I had people in my life who spoke Spanish, so they were saying my middle name right all the time, and I heard Spanish constantly, 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 and I just didn't hear Farsi 
hardly at all growing up. So can I ask you, this idea, this language, person of color, yeah. <laughs> when did we start saying POC? You know what's and, funny? And when, I came up in the yeah. 90s. I went to San Francisco State in the mid to late 90s into the aughts, we were saying people of color all the time. And then it went away for a while. And now it feels like, oh, the 90s are back. Like the 90s, hip hop, (laughs) just talking about social justice and all of this. It feels to me very 90s and very Bay Area. Now it's like the general term to use where I guess it was just, you know, people who went to Ethnic studies like near Berkeley classes. or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> our ethnic studies classes or whatever. We've been saying it forever. So, yeah, no, it's not a new term to me. But I could see how it's a new term to you. Can I ask a rather indelicate question? Sure. As you were pursuing your journalism career, I'm wondering if saying that you were a person of color yep. was something to be avoided for a while. And then in the last few years, as everyone got woke and— yep. All these companies started having diversity and inclusion programs that suddenly it was like a bonus. And you became even, you know, you're smart, you're amazing, you're funny, you're a great journalist, and you're also great on air. But, whoa, you're also a person of color. So, like, you help them look good, right? So my issue with that is I've always gone in identity forward These are the stories Mm. I'm interested in. I came out of San Francisco State and came to NPR as a production assistant. So my world was very focused on stories from the Latin American diaspora in the United States. So when I pitched in editorial meetings, that's what I pitched. I pitched Mm. myself as somebody who could bring these stories to NPR when nobody else could. I think it was 2005. And at that time, it was not cool. And I Mm. was just like whatever, this is what I'm going to be. But I have to say, it kind of irritates me that there are people that I see who now that it seems like, oh, this is an important thing to be focusing on and celebrating. People that I've seen come up in my career who have never wanted to identify themselves with that, who said things like, you know, I don't want to be pigeonholed as the person who only talks about Black issues or only talks about Latino issues. People of color that I have known coming up who now all of a sudden are embracing that, there's a part of me that feels a little salty, (laughs) let's just say. Yeah. Well, I can imagine. I think I asked you when we met, this is like embarrassing. I was like, am I a person of color? (laughs) And you were like, yes, you are. And I think in part because my other half is so... European, I guess, Swiss German. Mm-hmm. The Persian part kind of, well, despite my my name is really the first thing you see, but I always, I feel like the way I look. You could be anything. I could be anything. Yeah. And so people just decided what I was that made them comfortable. Yeah. I was Italian. Right. Or people on the subway will speak Spanish to me if they're looking for directions. They're like, that girl looks vaguely Hispanic. So I feel like I don't have a image of myself in Mm -hmm. some way. Does that make sense? Yeah. I have to say that I was really drawn to you. So you used to do this podcast, Note to Self, out of WNYC. I loved it. And I immediately was like, Manoush Zomorodi, she's Persian. This is freaking (laughs) awesome. (laughs) I was like, represent Iranian woman. Really? I was so excited. I knew you were Iranian. I was, I loved the show anyway. It didn't matter if you were Iranian or not, but it was like an extra special (laughs) bonus. So for me, 
I was like, oh, for sure. She's an Iranian woman, woman of color. So we're first generation, right? Yeah. And my name says I'm an Iranian woman. But what if the way I am in the world and on air is not Iranian at all? How is that representing in any way? Well, I think that's not your responsibility. I mean, I feel like your responsibility is to be you and to be authentically who you are. And that's based on how you were raised and the schools you went to and the place where you grew up and your family. And if other people want to feel a sense of closeness or if they like the fact that you're representing them in some way, I think that's Mm. beautiful and that's okay. And like you don't have to represent them exactly how they may expect you to represent them. You don't have to be bilingual or be perfect in Farsi. I think you can still be you and other people's expectations of your identity is, I don't, I wouldn't take that on. It's not your problem. (laughs) It's not your problem. I mean, it's taken me a lot of therapy and many, many years to get to that point. But yeah, I mean, Persian people are always like, why don't you speak Farsi better? And Or I get this all the time from Iranians, and I don't know what this means at all, but they're always like, oh, you don't look Persian. You look Arab. You look Egyptian. You look Lebanese. You look Syrian. But whatever, I am so Persian. So can we just tell people who are listening that that is probably them giving you, like, throwing shade. you shade or kind of, like, saying something mean? Can you explain the difference or, well, there is no difference, but the Persian-Iranian debate of language and why saying that you look Arab is kind of like not a nice thing, actually? They don't mean it in a nice way. Not that anyone gives a crap that whatever you look Arab, that's whatever. Who cares? Yes, exactly. Can you explain that? I mean, I have always been like, is that a diss? Because I know the whole background of Iranians really wanting to distance themselves from the Arab world to say we're different, but oftentimes that goes with we're superior, (laughs) which really irritates me. And so it's hard not to think if people say, oh, you look Arab and they're Iranian, that they're not saying you aren't as beautiful as an Iranian girl because, you know, (laughs) because Iranians do have a bit of a superiority complex. Let's be honest. (laughs) Yes, we do. (laughs) And then the whole Iranian-Persian thing, that's why I, like, use it interchangeably, because that can be a political statement, whether you say you're Iranian or whether you say you're Persian. So I just use them interchangeably, and people can deal with it. That's how I feel. I'm in charge of who I am. I'm in charge of my identity. I'm in charge of how I put myself out to the world. I know my background and my history, and I'm really trying to be more confident in who I am. You sound pretty confident. You sound pretty oh, good. Do I? Oh, thanks, Manoush. I had another instance where I went to give a talk. It was to women, female journalists, and I ended with things that I was thinking about and questions I had mm-hmm. going forward in my career. And one of the questions was, am I a POC? Because I was like, should I be? I, I was just confused because this was the first time I, I had been in a meeting the previous week and they had said, well, you know, Manoush, as a woman of color, what do you think? Mm. And I had never been asked 
to represent all women of color before, and wow. I did not feel comfortable with that. Yeah. And I was just kind of like, I almost like looked behind me to think, are they talking to somebody else? So I set, <laughs> asked this question, and then later at the event, at the cocktail party, I asked the organizer, I was like, so, you know, any feedback from the people? And she said, well... I'll be honest with you. Some of the African-American attendees were offended by your slide that said asking if you were a woman of color because they don't get to decide Hmm. and you do. Mm -hmm. And I I'm still thinking about it. I didn't know what to make of it. I mean, I think that that is a really interesting point. And yeah, Black women, when they walk through the world, people are labeling them. And what you're saying is you've been able to walk through the world and people kind of decide who you are based on what makes them comfortable, right? So you kind of can be a chameleon. And there's privilege to that. Yep. And I think what I was hearing with you asking that question is that you're acknowledging that there is privilege to where you have been and who— you have chosen to be your whole life, which is not a quote-unquote person of color, and that you don't know if it's fair to identify yourself that way because you've been walking through the world with white privilege. I mean, I think that's what it is. But I don't think it's offensive to be interrogating that, to ask yourself, well, is it fair for me to call myself this thing, you know? I think that that's actually really thoughtful. <laughs> well, thanks. I felt really bad. I felt really bad. I was like, the last thing I wanted to do was come to like a conference of all women journalists and and offend anyone for sure. But you know how you said you feel salty when you see people claiming the identity of person of color when it suits them? Yeah. I feel really salty when I see people in power, making hiring decisions where they hire a person of color, but that person, they have gone to the universities that everybody else has gone on the board. Mm -hmm. Like, it makes me mad to think of, like, board members being like, aren't we so awesome that we hired these people of color when they didn't stretch themselves in any way. They didn't hire someone who's the first person to go to college in their family Mm -hmm. or someone who doesn't sound like they do. And I said that to a friend of mine, and she was like, yeah, but it doesn't work like that. We're edging the door open. The door doesn't just fly open, and that's going to happen. Also, to push back on that, they may have gone to Yale and Harvard and lived in a fancy neighborhood that is probably predominantly white. But let me tell you, even if you have all those privileges in the world, it's still not easy to be one of a very few. Mm. Even if you come from all of that privilege, as a person of color, you're still marginalized in those spaces. Yes, you may know how to code switch and you can talk about whatever it is that folks talk about who went to Princeton and Harvard and Yale. But Trust me, they were treated some type of way at Princeton and Harvard and Yale and in whatever fancy community they may have grown up in where they were one of three black people or one of two Latinx people, you know. So Mm -hmm. race does trump class in a lot, a lot of cases in this country, I think. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be hiring 
people from across class spectrums because I think that we should be. But I also think that it is true that people who you may think have had all the privileges in the world, they've been marginalized based on their race. This is like the history of the United States of America, especially if they're African-American, especially if they're dark-skinned, because anti-Blackness is something real, and it's in every space. It's in the fancy spaces. It's in the not-fancy spaces. It's, you know, it's something that I've learned so, so, so much about working on Code Switch. Hmm. Can we talk a little bit more about Code Switch? Sure. There's an episode that I know you particularly love, and I do too, where you you actually apologize. You start crying in an interview and you apologize. Can you, can you set the scene and tell us about that? I wanted to do an episode about examining Puerto Rican identity because it's such a schizophrenic identity because Puerto Ricans are not immigrants. They're migrants. They're citizens but they speak a different language and have different cultural practices from quote-unquote American cultural practices. And there's this weirdness about how to identify. There's a pride in being American, but there's also a like, but being Puerto Rican trumps being American kind of. Mm, And it's mm -hmm. just complicated and there's lots of layers to it. And that's what we like to do on Code Switch is Mm -hmm. delve into those really complicated things. And it's something that my family, I've seen my family struggle with. You know, my grandfather fought for the U.S. military, but people are always telling him to go back to Mexico. And he's like, wait a second, I'm from Puerto Rico. I'm Puerto Rican. I'm a citizen. I've heard stories like this my whole life. And so the document that gave us citizenship, the Jones Act, was turning 100. And I thought, oh, this would be an interesting opportunity to talk about this weirdness around Puerto Rican identity, this confusion. And I went to Holyoke, Massachusetts, which is in Western Mass to a place that has the most Puerto Ricans per capita to talk about what it means to be Puerto Rican and what it means to be American. Mm. And I think it touched a nerve for me because it really encapsulated this feeling that I have all the time, which is that you don't belong anywhere. Being in the diaspora, it's a painful experience. That's, I think, the bottom line. This is a lifelong, painful experience. It's a heartbreaking experience that we live with every single day. So far and yet so close to home. And you don't really know who you are. And even people who my whole life, I'm not going to lie, my whole life, I thought it would just be easier if I was 100%, and I say, Mm. and I do that with air quotes, Puerto Rican, (laughs) I was thought maybe that that would make things so much simpler for me to understand who Mm -hmm. I am and where I belong. No, you know, talking to Puerto Ricans, it's way more complicated than that. Most of us don't even talk about it. We've learned to live with it. And they really struggle with this idea of who they are and where they belong and if they're American and if they're Puerto Rican and what does that mean. And I don't know, it just is something that I think I will go to my grave never quite feeling like I fit anywhere. And I guess that story kind of touched on all of those things for me. We were having all of these conversations about belonging and where we're from and all of this stuff, and I just... 
¿Qué pasó? Nada. What happened? Couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> I just broke down. I just, this is, <laughs> sorry. There's something about this story that's really upsetting. Yeah. Oh my goodness, She's like getting me a tissue and she's like, oh, my God, what did I say? I'm so, you know. So we struggled with whether to put that in the story or not. This is not what journalists are supposed to do, by the way. Oh, yes, it is. (laughs) It totally is. And then my editor was like, I think this is really important. And it ended up. People who listen to that story of all different ethnic and racial backgrounds and identity backgrounds, that moment right there, they were like, I understand that moment. I know why you were crying. Even though I'm not like you, I am so much like you. So I'm glad Mm -hmm. we put it in. Do you talk about this stuff with your parents? Are they like, do they get what you're talking about? Or are they like, what are you even going on about? Or like, what do they think? That is a great question. Actually, now that my parents are retired and they've been listening to the stories I've been making for a long time, and, you know, I've been talking about this stuff with them for years now because it's been something I've been fascinated with forever. Before, they would just be like, put your head down, work hard, you got this. And now... Mm -hmm. They've really opened their eyes to how they've been treated over the years Mm. and things that have Mm. happened to them. And they're so much more open to talking to me about ways that they've been discriminated against and ways that they feel like they haven't achieved everything that they could have. And they're reevaluating, I think, how they identify and how they were both really taught to just put their head down, work hard, and not complain. And I think that they, f- at least to me, they've been complaining. <laughs> nah. Or at least being like, oh, yeah, totally. My mom just being like, yes, that's that's so true. When she heard that episode, my mom was just, like, so moved. And my my grandfather was crying and my aunt. And like, these are things you hear in bits and pieces, but they were all like, you got it. That's exactly it. You know, that's what we've been going through. And it makes them want to talk about it. Like, we've been talking about Mm. these things so much more. That's awesome. I mean, how many people can say that the work that they do is changing their relationship with their family and their family's identity? Yes. And I've been recording my grandfather and recording my grandmother and you know, I tried. I met my aunt. Oh, they're still alive? For, yeah. <laughs> they're wow. still alive. On my Puerto Rican side. My grandparents on my Iranian side passed. I never really got to meet them or anything. But I met my aunts for the first time. And, I, of course, I, I busted out my recording equipment. And they were kind of like, whoa, whoa, we don't know you. <laughs> Which is true. Oh, that's really funny. And you were like, that's why we have to record it. <laughs> I know. It'll be really awkward and weird. And that makes for good tape. <laughs> it does. So, you know, I'm trying to reestablish a relationship with my father's sisters, and he's trying to do that as well. So, yeah, it's all of this is bringing us together and bringing us closer to our roots. I'm wondering, and maybe this is like a little too Pollyanna-ish, but I'm wondering if the work that you do, is public radio a place? <laughs> I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. you shouldn't have work be your entire identity or yeah you know, a big part of it. But is public radio actually a place where people like you and I can belong? Because 
it was kind of a running joke in my life that people are like, well, you have to be in public radio just because of your name. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. Exactly. I think that there is space to talk about these things, but I also think that public radio has a lot of the same issues that other white liberal spaces have, which is like, you can Mm -hmm. talk about these things as long as it makes us comfortable, (laughs) you know, and as long as it doesn't sound too militant or it's, Mm. there are ways that public radio has been a wonderful nurturing environment for me. And there's ways that I've felt incredibly marginalized and overlooked Mm. in public radio. So I have a very complicated feeling about being in public radio, which makes sense because I am most comfortable being in that kind of complicated tension. Yeah, and you're brilliant. (laughs) You made a career out of being in that complicated tension. Which is, I have to say, I never expected people to really embrace this kind of reporting. And I just Really? No. I mean, I love doing it, and I think it's really important. But Code Switch is actually fairly popular. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it is fairly popular. That's one way of putting it. Yeah, there is such a need and a hunger out there to hear this kind of storytelling. Uh, Last question for you. Sure. Other than listening to Code Switch, what do you think people should think about as they're navigating this increasing crossover between talking about our identities and how we identify as part of workplace culture, that it's not something you leave at the door anymore? I mean, is it not something that you leave at the door anymore? I still feel like there's ways that I definitely, definitely, definitely have to leave my Puerto Rican-ness at the door because I I am very dominantly, the way I was raised was very dominantly Puerto Rican, like with a lot of Puerto Ricans around me who happen to be very loud and argumentative and confrontational and all of these things that I learned and they're cultural and I love them. I have to leave that at the door. This is a very stiff upper lip. We're not getting emotional (laughs) at a meeting. Type environment. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. So I think right now things are confusing because it's like, oh, there is this feeling that, yes, you should authentically be who you are, and that's important, but also uh, do it in a way that doesn't make people feel uncomfortable, right? So it's just, it's an odd time right now, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. It really is. That's why I love the term code switch, because code switching, it's a linguistic term. So if I'm talking to you and then all of a sudden I say something, say both of us speak better Farsi than we do, and I say something in Farsi, you know, that's code switching and because I know that you're Persian or whatever it is. Or, you know, you put on your real New York accent if you're talking to like a New Yorker from Brooklyn who's born and raised in Brooklyn and you you really want to identify with that person, get really good tape from them if you're out in the field. So you're code switching to sound like that person. And I think that's where we are right now. We're code switching. I mean, we're constantly code switching. But I think in the workplace, we're still putting on this other persona to make the other people not feel threatened or uncomfortable. And so, I don't know. We're still in a weird place. We are in a weird place. But I guess, like, keep pushing the weirdness, I guess. I think so. And also keep interrogating yourself and how maybe you benefit from systems that 
oppress mm. other people and think about those things and think about your role in your relationship. And I think it's good that you are asking yourself, am I a person of color? Is it fair to call myself a person of color? I think we're in a place right now where we should all be more thoughtful about these types of things. Sheree and I have wanted to have this conversation for a year now, so thank you so much. Thank you, Manoush. This was awesome. I loved it. Shireen, I loved it too. Okay, in a minute, I'll be back with my business partner and producer, Jen Poyant. She listened very closely to this interview and has a lot to say as a producer of women of color making podcasts. We'll be right back. We're back. It's Zigzag. I'm Manoush, and I am with my lovely producer, co-founder, business partner, pho eater, <laughs> co-pho eater. We do eat a lot of pho here. We're a little obsessed with Vietnamese soup. Jen Poyant, hi. Hi. So... You just listened to this conversation between two women of color. color? I don't know. Whatever. Two women talking about being women of color. Did you come to a conclusion about yourself? Nope. Still working on it. Okay. (laughs) But I think, according to Shireen, that's my prerogative. So Totally. I love talking to her about the sensitive stuff because she just goes there and you're like, see, it's fine to talk about it. I love her. I think she's fantastic. She's rad, right? Yeah. I don't know. This is an interesting conversation for me to listen to because we've been working together for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I've kind of known that this was a journey that you've been on for a while. (laughs) And as your producer, who is white and privileged because I have white privilege. See, that, okay, even that, it's just... You don't like the term? I don't like the term, but, like, I don't know. Do you remember the... We had an argument about this. Do you remember? Because I had issues with the word privilege a couple years ago, and I use it now because everybody uses it, but at the time it felt very loaded to me, and... That was during an edit. It was like we were in it. We Mm. were in in a studio, and it was one of the only arguments we've had where I don't remember even what we ended up doing, if we struck the word or not. But I remember us both being like, <sighs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think with all of this terminology, to me, is like if you throw it around too much, it loses meaning, right? And so— Why? I disagree in this regard. Mm. I think when you talked about bringing back the phrase POC, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I hadn't thought about that, that— it had started in California in this very fringy way, and now everyone's using it, and now it's acceptable. I don't think it's lost any meaning for POC, and I'm not sure white privilege loses meaning by saying it either, does it? Well, it was interesting when I talked about it when I used the term with Valerie Jarrett mm-hmm. a couple last in the last episode. Mm-hmm. She said she qualified it, if I remember correctly. She said, well, privilege, as you call it. She qualified the word. And uh-huh. I don't know if that's a generational thing or, yeah, I don't know. It's weird. Like, I didn't use the word privilege like that until two years ago. So it's almost like a vocabulary change had yeah. to happen. Do you know what I'm saying? I do. And I think what I found interesting about both your conversation with Valerie Jarrett and with Shireen is that you guys were talking about your own experiences of privilege all as people of color or people that are seen as people of color. Thank right. you for the qualifier. <laughs> <laughs> and that's different than my white privilege. So I think qualifying what the privilege may be is important. That's a good way to put it. It's complicated, but a good way to put it. So 
What has your experience been like that? Because for those of you don't who don't know, listeners, Jen was one of the producers who helped um, develop the show Two Dope Queens at our previous workplace at New York Public Radio with uh, Phoebe Robinson and Jessica Williams. Turned out to be like a total hit show and really moved the needle in terms of more women of color being seen and heard and media generally. I think that's fair to say. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the thing that I want to, I would want to say right off the bat is that I think I've always tried as a white woman in media to be, I guess, what they call an ally to women of color and people of color and people that have, you know, that are represented differently in the world than just white people who have the privilege I'm talking about earlier. Like, I've always tried to be an ally and lift up and provide opportunities to both help develop their voices and provide a space for them to showcase their work and and do good work. But there must have been awkward moments, Jen. The way that show was developed, I had an opportunity to create a podcast festival for Women's Voices, and I invited Jessica to participate, and then she and Phoebe pitched the show to WNYC, and I was the executive at the time that they came to, and we slowly developed the show from there, but... WNYC Studios, where where we worked at the time, was new. Uh, it was like a new part of the station and did not have any women of color working. And because I, I had the opportunity to develop the show, there were awkward moments because the team was white. Uh-huh. The station had just that year hired its first head of diversity and inclusion. And we did end up working to diversify the staff at WNYC Studios. But, you know, there was an awareness that white women were producing this show with with two women of color. But at the same time, I thought it was a good opportunity to provide more space for women of color in media. That's fair. Not to put you on the spot, but, you know, that's what I can do because you're cornered mm-hmm. in a studio right now with me. Did you feel like there was an open conversation about that stuff with Phoebe and Jessica or was it... Like, I feel like now people kind of talk more openly about it. And when you developed that show, that wasn't that long ago. It was three years ago, four years ago. No, there was. I mean, and then Phoebe went on to develop a spinoff with us called So Many White Guys, which was essentially thumbing her nose, essentially, at the fact that media right now offers opportunities for white guys to interview you know, whoever, whoever they want. They want. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, the the conversation about race and inclusion and diversity was first and foremost just a part of those shows as well. So, yeah, it was it was something that we talked about a lot. Let's keep talking about it. I find this whole thing very interesting, and I love bringing in, like, someone like Shireen just goes there. And it's whether you agree with her take or not, I feel like she's open. And I would particularly recommend the episode that Code Switch did. Have you listened to the one about Judaism? No. I got to go listen to the back catalog now after this really episode. Good. I just— I so really, good. really enjoyed the interview. And, you know, I just think it's it's a conversation that needs to be happening more and more. And I feel like as my role, I have to be very aware of, like I said, my privilege. And it's an interesting kind of place to be as a white woman in media right now. Like, I've, We're glad you're here. Thank you. Okay, the grand finale of this season of ZigZag is coming in the next episode. Wow, 22 episodes, season four. Epic. Hefty season. Hefty season. We actually have a lot of news to share with you listeners. We're also going to share some of the crazy stuff that you have told us over this past season about your jobs, your relationships, your businesses, your careers. So 
one big gab fest, uh, but highly structured, educational, informative, and entertaining, as per usual. I feel like we've grown up a ton, Jen. I think so, too. I'm gl- I really appreciate the people that have stuck with us. I know we, we changed the show a lot, but I... I like where it's going. Yeah, some guy was like, yeah, you know that manic, crazy energy you had in season one? It was really great, but now you've kind of mellowed into more thoughtful, sort of constructive episodes. Like, he's <laughs> Thank like, you. He's just, and then he looked at me, he's like, I'm sorry. I was like, no, no, that was fair. Listeners, if you have been thinking about writing to us or recording a voice memo, now is the time. Our email address is zigzag at stableg.com. Maybe we'll include you in next week's episode. Um, we really do appreciate so much the correspondence, whether it's by recording your voice and telling us your story or emailing us. We do our best to respond, but we think about you and we talk about you all the time. So hopefully also you've signed up for the newsletter that we send out every other Thursday we link to all the best stuff we're reading, things we're thinking about, other episodes that we're working on. And you can sign up at the Stable Genius Productions website, which is at www.stableg.com. This episode was produced by me and Jen Poyant. Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio is our audio engineer and sound designer. David Herman is our composer. Maria Wartell is our production coordinator. And many thanks to Anya Zhezik for her audio engineering, too. <laughs> I hate meatloaf so much. Anything for love. Which one's that? Oh, no, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Because then I'll have, like, a medley going on in my head. Don't do it. But I won't. Stop. Do. Oh, God. <laughs> hate, hate, hate meatloaf.